Hello there, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Random Ramblings of Robert. This is going to be the first in a series, which I hope to be doing at least once a week, in which I just talk about things that have been on my mind or things that I have found interesting as of late. Uh, I like to think that typically we will keep things more condensed to one topic and episode, but you never know. We'll just see how it goes. Anyways, but thank you for joining me. Today, we will be discussing who I believe to be the greatest statesman in history and who many, including myself, believe to be the greatest orator in history. Someone who I hope that you will come to know and cherish the way I do by the end of our time here today. Marcus Tullius Cicero. Now, you may be asking, well, who is he? So we're going to start off by going through kind of his life as a whole. Um, then I'm going to share with you some bits of his legacy that I find interesting. And then I think that we'll finish it off by just me giving my own thoughts on why I think he's someone really important and someone that we should take note of today. Uh, so Cicero was born on January 3rd, 106 BC, 206 miles, or excuse me, 62 miles southeast of Rome. My apologies, but this is really interesting. Uh, you see, because throughout his political career, he kind of used the fact that he was not a Roman uh, in a traditional sense of being from Rome to his advantage because although a lot of his enemies called him an outsider or a foreigner because of this he used it to persuade more uh, popular opinions of himself with the Roman public saying that he's kind of you know a bit of an outsider going in and trying to get things done properly kind of like how we've seen a bit of a trend with some uh, politicians here in America today his uh personal surname Cicero actually stems from kind of a play on words in um, Latin saying chickpea this is just interesting because uh, there's kind of some debate between how it is this came to be and what it really means some people think it's because uh, Cicero in examining some uh, you know marble sculptures and bust of his heads it seems like he might have had a cleft lip and it could have been possibly hereditary and people thought it looked like a chickpea or it could be because his family had previously gotten a lot of money off of the growing and exports of chickpeas no one really knows for certain but it's interesting nonetheless um here's where things get important though as cicero grew older he was you know i mean he came it's important to note that although Cicero's family was kind of, you know, like upper middle class and, you know, his dad had pretty good connections in Rome, Cicero's family was never really, you know, kind of interconnected with things, you know, like some other families were. But because of this, Cicero got a good education and he became extremely fluent in both Latin and Greek. In fact, actually, he is responsible for the translation of a lot of Greek philosophy into Latin for larger audiences in Rome at the time, which is fairly of note. He traveled throughout Greece and Asia Minor and Rhodes in the study of, you know, just what he could learn, specifically Greek and Latin. But what was really interesting is that he kind of uses time to hone his own personal style of oration, which would become eventually kind of, you know, his thing was how well-spoken he was. Uh, and then he eventually just, you know, kind of, he worked as a lawyer for a time, and then he eventually was able to uh, enter into politics, and he did some stuff here and there. But the first and most notable thing he did was 
he actually prosecuted the governor of Sicily, Gaius Verres, or Varies, I there's a lot of really hardcore Roman and some French names in this episode, so forgive me for my horrible pronunciation of that, but please just stick with me here. He prosecuted him under the thing that he was doing, which was plundering and abusing his power as, you know, of control over the providence to kind of, you know, gain his own wealth. And this is the first in a long line of many things that made people see Cicero as someone who was against people using the government for their own personal gain. Uh, what's really interesting is that actually Cicero rose through the ranks of government extremely quickly. Um, for example, at the minimum age that he could be anything, he was that exactly. Uh, he was a quester at the age of 30. That's pretty notable. He was an edile by 36, also extremely notable. Praetor at 39 and was a consul at 42, which is really noticeable for being the first novus homo or new man in 31 years to be elected consul. What that means is that he had no prior familial connections to the consulship or higher Roman office. And he was the first one of those in three years. That's really interesting to me that Cicero is able to make that much of an impact. And, you know, um, going back on uh, Cicero's being elected in uh, the office of consul, it's really interesting because so the conservatives were kind of in a bit of a bind going into the uh, 63 uh, consul elections because previously the kind of horse that they backed if you will or horse that they hitched their wagon to was sola and sola without getting into it because it's a whole can of worms was someone that made a lot of bad decisions and tried to overthrow things and cause a civil war anyway so a lot of the con a lot of the conservatives they just didn't have anybody and a lot of the younger conservatives weren't old enough and experienced yet for the consulship so kind of being forced to they went with Cicero which was a bit of a gamble because he wasn't a very traditional conservative in a lot of ways and he came from a very unknown family and he just wasn't very proven if you will um but they did it nonetheless because he didn't have a choice to um what's interesting is that the two things really quick so the man who he was actually um running against uh Antonius and Catalina Catalina didn't win anything, and he almost became broke in the process. Keep him in mind, he is very important. A uh, person who actually, you know, ended up getting second and would become Cicero's co-consul for that year was Antonius, who was the uncle of Mark Antony, who is very important later and is the eventual right-hand man of Julius Caesar, but that's not important for now. So anyways, Catalina failed, and didn't get elected into office and was bankrupted himself in the process but that's not important uh he swatted down a land reform bill which was basically wanting to sell off land owned by the roman state to people and then you know redistributing the money in the land to the poor uh this really made cicero seem like a hardcore conservative but he wasn't he was just afraid of how this would affect the roman treasury and about how it would affect the stability and how it could increase the power of the aristocracy while you know lessening that of the impoverished in which it was trying to uh aid so he put it down but it kind of painted cicero into being an arch conservative for the majority of his career and even though this wasn't really 
confirmed ever, but I think it is if you go back and read the land reform bill proposed during Cicero's consulship and the one that Caesar would eventually pass. Well, I think that Julius Caesar was behind this land reform bill, at least partly, and Cicero suspected the same thing, which is interesting because part of the reason why Catalina and Antonius had trouble getting elected over Cicero was because they were associated with a young Julius Caesar who was already a very polarizing figure. Anyway, so once they got around to actually doing the elections for next year's consuls, Cicero, or rather, well, you know, both Cicero and his wife had connections all over the city of Rome and kind of their own internal, you know, gossip network. But anyways, he eventually, somewhere down the line, caught wind that Catalina would maybe try to assassinate Cicero. So Cicero actually showed up to elections wearing body armor with the kind of an escort of thugs, if you will, which was not illegal, but it was very unprecedented. It wasn't very, you know... It just wasn't normal to do. And this really, nothing happened to Cicero. So either it scared someone off or nothing was ever to happen to begin with. But nonetheless, Catalina lost again. And this was very important because remember how last time I said that Catalina almost bankrupted himself? Well, this time he actually did bankrupt himself and threw himself into horrible debt trying to pay off bribes to everybody and their mom, even though it turned out to be nothing in the end. Um, very important thing, though, actually, after uh, elections were overseen, one of the new consuls that just won was accused by a consul who lost, who wasn't Catalina, or a, consul, a consular candidate who lost of taking bribes. Now, this is important because everybody, and I do mean everybody in the Roman government, took bribes or gave out bribes to someone. But it's important because it was super illegal. Like it was, no, you were not supposed to do this, yet people were doing it like crazy. Even Cicero, who a big part of his campaign was that he was against bribery. That even though he never explicitly bribed people himself, the conservatives backing him were bribing people no tomorrow. So this is pretty interesting. Uh, but even though typically Cicero would be against something like this, he actually went and defended the new consul who was just elected in uh, saying that he wasn't guilty of the crime that he really did commit. And going back, and if you read some of Cicero's writings and stuff, you know, and uh, other analysis of this, it really does seem like, and this is starting to show through, and that's something that we know now, is that Cicero never had any real political allegiance as so much he did have just an allegiance and love for the senate and the state for which he stood for and wanting to uphold rome itself and it's just very interesting how you can kind of see this uh early in his political career like this and how you can really see that his law career is also translating into his political success now, this is a very big part, so strap yourselves in for this one, folks, because eventually um, Cicero, through a being, yeah, him, was able to get the guy acquitted, but this is where we enter the Catiline Rebellion. Now, this is important because remember Catalina? Well, Catalina said, okay, I hate this, y'all are stupid, I don't like you, I'm just going to go make my own government by overthrowing yours. And, well, he didn't say this out loud because that was highly illegal. And eventually Cicero was actually received message from another Roman senator saying that Catalina was wanting to overthrow the government. And then not only that, Cicero received reports from his wife and other spies in their network that there was armies rising in the north. 
in response to this, Cicero put Catalina under house arrest and was named Senatus Consultum Ultimum, which basically was called, translates loosely to the final act, and it's kind of like martial law, and that is the Senate giving the consuls who are in charge of that year just unlimited power, essentially, to do whatever they have to to uphold, you know, the Republic. Now, you may ask, okay, well, you said consuls the power, okay? Why is everything you're about to say? Because it is having to do with Cicero. Well, that's because Cicero, at the beginning of his consulship, did something so smart and so ingenious. I'm honestly kind of shocked that it didn't become common practice. He looked at Antonius and he said, Hey, Antonius, after I'm done, I'm slated, with my term as consul, I'm slated to become the governor of Macedonia, which was one of the most prestigious providences there was. And he said, If you just shut up and let me do what ever I want is consul, you can get my providence. And Antonius looking at, you know, like I can be a consul for one year, governor for five, get really rich off of it, a couple of legions, my own military command. He goes, yeah, bro, that's no duh. I, I will do that. But looking back on it, this was a very, very smart move on Cicero's part that helped him a lot more than it helped the Antonius. So, but it's just interesting that he was named uh, essentially just in charge in, of the Republic and was able to do whatever he had to to uphold it and keep it safe. Um, he attempted to banish Catalina, but a lot of people didn't really want to put their name against Catalina in case, like, you know, uh, Poo Poo was to hit the fan, if you will. Um, and Catalina did overthrow the government and started cracking heads. So... Nothing ever happened to Catalina that night, and he wasn't banished like Cicero tried to do. And this really annoyed Cicero, but um, it should have happened because then Catalina fled that night. Big shocker to his armies in the north. But what's really interesting about this is that the Gallic uh, tribes in the north, a diplomat actually from Catalina's rebellion, went over to one of the leaders of the tribes and tried to get some of the Gauls to uh, go with them and, you know, march against Rome. But uh, this Gallic tribe leader, actually being a fan of Roman stuff, went and he talked to Cicero about it. And he's like, you know, I'm going to turn him down and stuff. You know, I just wanted you to know. And Cicero goes, no, 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 no. This is ingenious, actually. Go in and be like, you know, my buddy, my spy on the inside. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense, you know. Uh, and then, actually, they used it as a trap. And when the next meeting was called, Cicero and... Some soldiers went in and arrested all of the Roman senators and uh, people who were leading the rebellion under Catalina. Now, this is where things get really interesting. So then Cicero brings them all before the Senate and he says, I need to execute these people. We have no idea how deep this conspiracy runs here in Rome. We need to kill them off as a show of force and to keep anybody else from trying it. Now, this is interesting because remember how I said that Cicero was basically in charge and had unrivaled power and could do whatever he wanted? Well, it's just interesting that even though that was the case and that, you know, a senatus consultum ultimatum is ultimum is an act. Sorry, my apologies. Messed up my wording again. Um, Wasn't an act that he still wanted approval from the Senate. And it shows that he always wanted to go with what they wanted and always wanted to uphold them because that was where his true values lied in all of this and that he wasn't ever working for his own gain but for the gain of the roman state and upholding the senate now what's really interesting about this is that everybody was like yeah all right this makes sense um and then 
Caesar actually got up once uh, it was, you know, the turn turn of the Praetors to talk. And he said that, well, killing these people without, you know, giving them a fair trial sounds like a very tyrannical thing to do. And that little T word was kind of like the magic word, you know, in Rome. You know how, like, uh, cloud is basically the magic big picture word, you know, in a lot of tech companies as being this cool thing, you know? Well, that was tyranny or tyrant or tyrannical in rome like because you know ever since tarquin the proud was put down in the roman senate was established nobody wanted to be a tyrant or associate with tyrants or anything so in caesar saying that it kind of twisted everything and this is very suspicious to Cicero because he thought that catalina and caesar were kind of friends and he became very suspicious wondering if caesar was in on this too and it's still not known to this day really whether or not Caesar was in on the Catiline Rebellion, but looking at some things, I don't know if he was explicitly involving himself with them, but I could see him having connections to it, you know, but, and this kind of made the whole Senate go, you know what, maybe so, and then Cato, who was very young conservative at the time, but was already making a very big name for himself, stood up and said, basically, you all little pansies in the Senate are pretty weak. And your stomachs and your weak stomachs are going to get all of Rome, you know, up heated overnight and all these bad things are going to happen. And that basically turned everybody go, yeah, okay, we just need to kill these people now. So then uh, all of this Roman Senate actually voted to have Caesar executed, interestingly, or not, my apologies, voted to have these traitors, uh, you know, traitors, senators and stuff executed. And Caesar hated this. He erupted into this huge frenzy against them all and started screaming and hollering and everything, you know. And he actually almost started uh, fighting the opposition. The fight, basically almost a huge fight erupted in the Senate. And then C Cicero actually called in his own bodyguards and they drew their swords. And a very tense standoff happened in the Senate house. Now, this is extremely unorthodox a huge moral gray area and was flat out illegal of cicero to do that because swords and weapons were not allowed in the city of rome okay that'd be like in today in america if you know when uh the Cong if you know like uh during a congress session if they start you know uh getting up and yelling at each other over a disagreement that would be like the uh speaker of the house ordering in a group of uh you know thugs and stuff all with a you know, like AR-15s or something, and then uh, holding everybody at gunpoint until everybody calmed down. You know, but it's kind of interesting because it's like in this right here, Cicero wasn't trying to, you know, kill off his enemies or anything. He was just trying to keep the peace. And a very interesting piece of foreshadowing and a parallel here is that Caesar's blood was almost spilled in the Senate house. Just think about that for a second. And that... That might come up later, <laughs> funnily enough. But, so, anyways, after the uh, vote was called and everything, the next day Cicero went and executed all of them. And they were hung and everything by being thrown into a Roman cistern. It's actually pretty interesting. But after this, Cicero, and at the end of his consulship, Cicero was named father of the republic and he was praising he was you know kind of called this for the rest of his life and cicero would later say that that is the proudest moment of his life 
and that it was he thinks the greatest thing he ever accomplished was being called father of the republic but anyways after his term as a consul he in 60 bc was actually invited to become the fourth member of the triumvirate with julius caesar crassus and pompey now this is important because these three men were both very influential wealthy they were just kind of you know these very powerful political figures and in creating an alliance they basically were going to have rome under their thumb and they wanted cicero to get in on it with them you know to even strengthen it further but cicero actually refused it thinking that it would go against the senate and that it would be you know kind of abusing it and he wanted to keep his own influence and power over things in the uh hands of the people rather than the hands of uh you know other greedy men and that's pretty interesting once again it kind of shows behind the scenes what his character was really like now eventually in 59 bc caesar was elected consul and this is pretty important because during this time when caesar was consul and clodius you know had a, an important political position as well uh cicero was actually exiled out of rome um they passed a bill that said that you know anybody uh, who ever will or has important part being the has there ever been involved with executing someone without trial could be exiled and if you remember just a few moments ago we discussed how Cicero even though he argued and I think it's a pretty fair point that even though he argued that he was under senatus consultum ultimum which kind of you know gave him legal immunity to just do whatever he needed to even though he was always seeking approval of the senate on his actions said that it was within his right to do that but nonetheless it, the bill passed and cicero was exiled and it was a pretty dark time for cicero and in his personal writings he writes about a lot of depression and about how it really upset him and he went into Thessalonica and it really kind of upset him. And then as kind of a, you know, to rub it in his face, Clodius actually confiscated Cicero's home in Rome and had it destroyed and turned into a temple. So that wasn't very nice. But luckily, um, in 57 BC, through a series of deals with Pompey and, you know, uh, the triumvirate, Cicero in 57 BC was actually able to return to Rome. But he, and this is kind of a upsetting thing for him deep down, he had to give his vocal support to the triumvirate, which, if you remember, not only went against his values, but he explicitly tried to stay away from. So... It wasn't the greatest thing with him in the world, and he just kind of, you know, did some things here and there. And then eventually he went over, and he was the government of Macedonia for a while. And, you know, really, I really knew it. There is nothing all that notable from his time in Macedonia. I mean, he kind of, I guess you could say, showcases his militant tactician side, you know. I guess, or like his battle strategy by taking out a couple of armed thugs and putting down a very, very, very small and insignificant rebellion. Basically, he was just kind of, you know, doing whatever. He just did, he had to, to, you know, stay in office and stuff. But this is where things get really interesting. So, um, a little thing called a civil war happens in Rome. And a few years later, when, you know, Caesar crosses the Rubicon and marches on Rome and then Pompey uh to you know bide his time and build his forces 
runs over into Greece, and Cicero was kind of torn on what to do. I mean, because on one hand, he was kind of an interesting position on it, because while everybody, you know, was either siding with Caesar or Pompey, Cicero said, who cares? They are like the same exact person who are trying to use their military might to seize power for themselves. They're just on different sides of the aisle, essentially. So Cicero was not pleased with either way this was going. He thought that no matter what happened, it would end in militant tyrant, uh, tyranny. And he was kind of right, but... So, but eventually after pondering it, he went and he actually sided with Pompey because the majority of the senators already sided with Pompey. And Cicero thought that if he was to position himself anywhere, it should be where the Senate is and hoping that uh, whoever holds the majority of the Senate with them would become the victor. And he thought that he could use what was left of the Senate to, you know, maybe put power back in the balance of things. Um... Interestingly enough, though, Pompey, and I mean, actually, we might talk about this later because it was a humiliating defeat for Pompey, and it really showed how brilliant of a battle strategist and um, tactician Julius Caesar was, but at the Battle of Pharsalus, um, Pompey is defeated, and after this, Caesar, or, yeah, Caesar won, and Cicero just looks around and says, I hate all of y'all. Like, he's like, y'all are useless, y'all are completely abandoning what this republic stands for, and just being disillusioned with everything, he just, he refuses Pompey's, uh, you know, offer of getting, uh, and to be put in charge of a few legions and everything, and he just sits and kind of, you know, summers in Rome for a little bit and lets everything play out. Uh, all while just trying to keep the Senate together and stuff. And then eventually, Caesar gets, you know, wins, and he acts like a king, basically. And while all this was going on, Cicero was kind of plotting to figure out a way to, you know, kind of befriend Caesar and eventually get him to chill a little bit. And maybe Cicero thought that through administrative shenanigans, he could kind of put uh, Caesar in check in terms of power, you know, power with the Senate. But then... <laughs> Um, Cicero was kind of thrown for a loop when, in a Senate meeting one day on the 15th of March, the Ides of March, he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, a bunch of senators stand up and start stabbing Caesar to death, and he goes, huh, I was not expecting that, really, um, hmm, I mean, it's interesting, and I don't know why necessarily, I think maybe it's because of age, but actually, even though it was talked about a little bit, the conspiracy never really invited Cicero, which honestly, I don't know if he even would have joined, because it would have been interesting, because on the one hand, you know, it strictly is trying to take a tyrant out of power, which seems like Cicero, something Cicero would be down for, but on the other hand, killing a prominent figure in the house of killing a consul nonetheless in the house of the senate with illegally armed senators um that seems a little bit destabilizing which as we know cicero loves stability and peace so it's an interesting thought experiment to think about which way he might have uh, gone on the matter but after this this left cicero and mark antony who was uh caesar's right hand man before he died kind of as the two leading men in rome cicero in charge of the senate you know and uh he kind of took hold of uh the conspiracy and stuff you know and what was left of it and guided uh decimus and brutus on what they should do and antony as the leader of the caesarians you know and all of them uh but this is really cicero's kind of where his brilliance and you know 
political tactics show through better than they ever did is that he looked at the scene and he saw that excuse me that the cesarean faction was actually kind of in a bit of an odd spot because as we know mark antony was of course caesar's right hand man i mean when caesar was out campaigning and stuff you know against pompey and uh later against uh labinus's small uprising in spain uh Antony was always put in charge as his number two and stuff, you know, so it seemed like a natural progression to have Antony take charge. But upon the unsealing of Caesar's will, a very interesting thing came along in that the son of his favorite mistress was named the sole beneficiary of his will and said that he was adopting him as his son. This son is, of course, Octavius, who is now referred to as Octavian, now that he's uh, inherited uh, Caesar's will, who would later become Augustus, or the first emperor of Rome. Anyways, a lot that doesn't really matter. That was just interesting to know. But you kind of had an interesting thing if you were a Caesarian, and that you would go, well, do I want to go with the former right-hand man? That kind of just seems like a natural progression. Or the new son of caesar that literally carries his father's name because even though understand that even though kind of uh in a modern day context we call octavius uh after this octavian uh back in the day he just fully took uh, caesar's name he wasn't octavius anymore or octavian he was just julius caesar um, but we just call him Octavian to stop confusion because that would get very annoying and very hard to understand and track with. So Cicero, in a move of brilliance, actually started praising and, you know, giving all of his favor and kind of, you know, mentoring Octavian and going, you know, man, this is really messed up that this Antony guy is, you know, trying to like trample on your birthright and stuff. And Octavian goes, yeah. You're right, Cicero, that really is messed up, and actually it went as far uh, that some reports say that behind the scenes, Octavian was actually calling Cicero father and really did kind of see him as a mentor figure. And eventually during this time, Cicero actually wrote a letter, uh, a series of pamphlets called the Philippics, which were just slandering Antony and calling him basically a big doo-doo head. Like he just hated Antony and he said, this is why Antony is a tyrant and is just wanting to become another Caesar and why he should be stopped. And this worked perfectly because it split the Caesarian faction. I mean... It was devastating because now both Octavian and Antony were really kind of reduced to almost nothing in comparison to what the Senate was capable of. And Antony was able to become named an enemy of the state after a whole deal of shenanigans, which I don't want to get into, that involves him marching against Decimus and Decimus kind of moving around and then Octavian raising a small army and it just basically through a bunch of political shenaniganry Antony is named an enemy of the state and this shows how like I want to really highlight that in a year's time Cicero went from being under the thumb of a tyrant and having the political world shaken to splitting the Caesarian faction, putting the Senate the strong, having the Senate be as strong as it has been in a decade, protecting the conspirators which he was trying to help and aid and giving them powerful posts in government, all while masterfully manipulating uh, and disassembling his enemies. I mean, 
it's truly incredible. I just want to sit back and think about that for a second. Like, when did that, like, in modern day, that would be, you know, like, some random, you know, congressperson all of a sudden being able to get the president and the vice president to start arguing with one another and hating each other, protecting all of their friends. I mean, it's just, I can't even put it into words how incredible of a move this was by Cicero and how brilliant his political strategy played out over the course of a year. It just shows how, I mean, the guy was just genius. He just had to be. I mean, like, if you go back and just read some of his works, I just feel like it's, anyways, we'll get to that later. But... Then, this is where things take a bit of a dark turn for Cicero. Um, Octavian, kind of looking at the political landscape of things, he kind of saw what was going on, and he made some tough choices, and he thought, you know, I can probably have a better time for myself in the future if I actually reconcile with Antony. And Octavian, Antony, and another guy named Lepidus formed the second triumvirate, and theirs was so strong that they actually got all three named, uh, basically dictators for a term of five years, uh, in the Senate. And this just hurt Cicero. He actually wrote that the Senate was his, uh, weapon and it has fallen to pieces in his hand in response to learning this. I mean, it just destroyed him. I mean, and it upset him so much. He just immediately retired from politics and just went to his home, uh, outside of where he grew up and, uh, you know, like, um, South, excuse me, uh, just Southeastern Italy. Like it really upset and hurt him that this all happened the way it was. And, this is where things get really kind of sad and dark, if you will, because during this time to, you know, try and keep, you know, their own enemies out of things and try and, uh, you know, establish their own power, Octavian, Antony, and Lepidus uh, started what was called proscriptions, which basically meant that a list of individuals deemed, you know, not safe or unwanted were going to go ahead and you know say that it was perfectly fine to kill them and that they are no longer considered a roman citizen and not only that whoever kills them inherits a chunk of their estate and their fortune which this made a lot of uh you know murderous criminals millionaires overnight and some of the wealthier people in rome and there was kind of like a lot of takes and gives you know here like uh lepidus would you know give up his friend and antony would give up his friend and one of the people that was put up for this was Cicero, sadly. Antony had a huge grudge against him, and he wanted Cicero dead. And Octavian was put in a really hard place here because, I mean, he would call Cicero father. He was his mentor. And Octavian actually argued against it for two days before he finally gave in. And accounts kind of differ on this, but... I'm going to just kind of give you a, a summary of a lot of accounts on how it was exactly that Cicero died. And actually, the first time I read this, it actually about made me start crying. But it said that after his home was broken into and everybody was interrogated, they figured out that Cicero was walking into town and that one of his staff fled over to Cicero and his escort and, you know, his uh, escort and told them all that you know people were coming to kill Cicero and they finally uh found where he was and Cicero didn't run he didn't hide he simply told his escort to leave him be and 
the four soldiers walking along, one of which was a centurion, saw him under a tree, quietly reading to himself, at which point Cicero stood up and pointed to the lead centurion and said, Come here, soldier, you know, and he walks over and he says, There is nothing proper about what you are doing, but at least do this properly. And he knelt down on the ground and exposed his throat for the centurion to slash open, which he did. Cicero's neck was severed and his hands were cut off after this. Antony had his head and his hands nailed to in the Roman Forum next to the area, you know, the little station where Cicero would hand out the Philippics and, you know, a way of symbolically mocking Cicero in his efforts. In time, uh, Cicero's head was removed. His hands always stayed there, but Cicero's head was removed, and Antony's wife, Fulvia, actually took a pin and pierced and mutilated Cicero's uh, tongue as a way of, you know, kind of mocking him and his uh, public speaking ability, if you will. And that is sadly the end of Cicero. And it really kind of makes me sad because I feel like he deserved better you know and as you can tell i really like cicero and it just saddens me a little bit that that was the end that he got and i don't know it's just kind of sad and eventually cicero's son interestingly enough would be elected consul along with octavian who at this point was going by augustus and cicero's son actually uh through a series of the uh political and military uh battle was able to strip antony of all of his honors and everything you know so that was kind of like a nice little way of getting revenge or you know peace or something for cicero's death and it's because of i think his guilt of it that octavian or augustus actually really fast-tracked uh, Cicero's son's career in a lot of ways but just some things that are of note of Cicero as we kind of go in and talk about his legacy and effect of things is that the admirers some of the uh, most notable admirers of his and outspoken you know enjoyers of his work and people in his things are John Locke who you know has wrote in very famous philosophical works like Life, Liberty and Property and stuff uh, Martin Luther, who, as we know, started the Protestant Reformation and, you know, rebellion of the Catholic Church. Um, <laughs> this is going to be probably one of the worst one. De, uh, De Officis, which was a series of um, philosophical and uh, philosophical and, you know, kind of thoughts on the role of government and stuff you know a series of writings by cicero was actually the first or not sorry my apologies was the second book printed on the printing press invented by johannes gutenberg which means that cicero's works were so influential that after they printed the bible they thought that they should put something of his to print for people to read i mean that's just <laughs> it's just crazy to me that it shows that even hundreds of years after his death, he was seen as that important of someone, you know, to take note of. It's just crazy to me. Um, he is loved and praised by many philosophers because um, Cicero himself always considered himself to be something of a philosopher. Uh, most notably, actually, um, French philosopher Voltaire, who has written a great deal about uh, religious freedom, you know, and uh, the 
role that the government has in religion and how they should kind of be kept separate. Um, actually, a very interesting quote from Voltaire is, The greatest as well as the most elegant of Roman philosophers in direct relation to Cicero. Um, a quote from John Adams, one of the founding fathers of the U.S., says, As all the ages of the world have not produced a greater statesman and philosopher untied other than Cicero, his authority should have great weight, said by John Adams, who, as you know, was not only one of the founding fathers, but the second president of the U.S., He has been a major influence, uh, or Thomas Jefferson specifically cited him as a major influence uh, behind the writing and composition of the Declaration of Independence, which, you know, is a bit of a minor document in U.S. history. This one's bad. I'm so sorry for this one. Camille Desamoli. Okay, for future episodes, if you're still, if anybody is still listening to this ramble, I'm going to look up the pronunciation of names. Don't worry, but... Camille Desaumoulinia, a French guy who was a part of the French Revolution um, and a major politician of that, said that, in relation to Cicero, mostly young people who, nourished by the reading of Cicero at school, had become passionate enthusiasts for liberty. And I fall in the camp with a lot of these people. I really like Cicero, but I think what I wanted to take a second and talk about was, I think how... In today's society, I think that it's important to look at someone like Cicero did and, you know, really take note of how important he was and, you know, the kind of man that he was. I mean, especially here in America, I feel like we look at our political system and we see it, you know, is that left, right, whatever. Everybody's always just pushing their own agenda. It's just like wanting to line their own pockets and... I think that it's really important to take note of someone like Cicero who always really loved and upheld his country that he loved and, you know, really just fought so hard to always keep it as it was. And was he perfect? No, he wasn't. Nobody can be perfect. Did he make mistakes? Yeah, he did. He had a couple of court cases, which I didn't mention that he kind of botched in a couple uh, ways and stuff, you know, but I think it's really important to know and see that I've read a lot of things saying that Cicero was, you know, always flip-flopping between things. He had no real political stance and stuff, you know, and that he didn't really care about anything and he just, you know, wanted his name to become famous. But I feel like that's really not looking at what Cicero was doing. I think that really kind of looking and reading at what he was wanting to do shows a man who saw the world in the way that he wanted to and work to make it the way that he did and it involved compromise it involved you know him trying to you know make deals here and there but he ultimately worked to not just complain about the world or what upset him but you know to make it into what he wanted it to be and what he felt it should be and I think that that's something really worth taking in uh, in today where I feel like we just complain a lot, you know, we just say all this stuff, but I think it's important to look at someone who just fought to do something and fight for something that they really loved and cared about, not for their own personal gain, 
not for, you know, uh, fame or whatever, but because they felt that it was their duty, that they were called to do it, and that it was right. And it's just, I don't know, it's just something I've been thinking about recently, and I just wanted to share that with y'all. And, and to finish this off, now granted, I want to say I read one account of this. I don't know if it's true. Um, I like to think it's true, and I think it's a nice story, but don't take it as the gospel truth. But when Octavian, or Augustus as he now was, was an old man, you know, and stuff, he caught his grandson reading something from Cicero. His grandson thinking that it was something that one of his grandfather's enemies had, you know, back in the day had written, tried to hide it, and Augustus demanded that he give it to him, and his grandson gave it to him, and it said that Augustus spent many moments looking over and reading it, and after pondering what it said, he handed it back to his grandson and said, this was a learned man who loved his country. Take heed his words, and you will do well for yourself. And I just want to leave you off with that and thinking about what that means to you personally and about, I don't know, just what it makes you think about. But anyways, that has been my ramble for this week. Uh, please come back next week for it. I'm trying to release them every Friday. And until then, I hope that you made it actually this far. Have a wonderful rest of your week.